Jesus. Hello, everybody. Hi, listeners. Welcome to episode 73 of I'm Horrified. Woohoo! Uh, that's, I love saying, every time we do a new one, it's just like, we're just climbing that ladder. I know. I wonder if it'll ever wear off. I feel like it won't. I thought you were going to say, I wonder if it'll ever stop. Like, I wonder <laughs> if we'll ever stop doing this. Like, we'll just keep doing episode 104 over and over and over again. I wonder if we'll ever give the universe a break <laughs> from our blatherings. No! Yeah, no. Fuck no, is the what we The answer is no. So today, we're doing... A little more of a serious topic. We've covered serious topics in the past, and you guys have been on board with us. Absolutely. Um, we're not going to be huge nerds. Every or, week. What's the what's the word for that? Weirdos. Huge goofy goobers. Slobs. You know, this Disgusting week. pieces of garbage. <laughs> are we just describing ourselves or, like, in the context of this podcast? No, I mean both. <laughs> we are our authentic selves. But today I wanted to tackle something a little serious. I'm going to be talking about the opioid crisis. And Sam, you're going to bring us out of that depression. I mean, am I? Into a lighter... T- it's actually not that light. It's oh, not God. that this light. This is kind of a bummer of an episode. Either, yeah. I'm going to talk about... Well, I mean, I'll talk about it. But I'm going to talk about the life and times of Gloria Vanderbilt, who passed away last month. Um, We're going to celebrate her. Yeah. Even though her life was kind of tragic. But her... Yeah, her life had a lot of uh, bad shit happen in it. I don't know what to tell you. We did an episode on the McRib, like, yeah. a day ago. Just, so... You, you you take the good with the bad. You gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold yeah. them. Yeah. But we're not gonna do super laughs today. Probably so not. So... Unless we just get deal very inappropriate. Yeah, unless <laughs> we make some choices. <laughs> Wowie. Um, but we're probably not going to. So, let's, let's dive ahead in. Um... I'll start by saying that I really hesitated to tackle this topic because of a few reasons. The first one is that I'm concerned about doing this topic justice in the limited time that we have, which is usually about 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, as it's such a sweeping topic. And the second is that I worried about handling this topic with care because I am aware of how many people who are affected by this topic and by opioids and by substance abuse. People I know people you know, you know, I don't think there's anyone with more than a one degree mm-hmm. of separation from what's happening in America right now in terms of opioids at this point. Yeah. But I decided that what I wanted was to have a, a more fleshed out working knowledge of what the opioid crisis actually is. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really know what it was. I knew that it meant that there's more substance abuse in America than there has been in the past, but I didn't really know much more than that. So... I wanted to learn more about this, and I think a lot of you are going to want to learn more about this. So with the understanding that we cannot cover the full breadth of this topic Mm -hmm. and a shared desire to expand our knowledge together, we will press forward. Absolutely. So opioids, as we now know them, didn't really hit the scene in a significant way until the mid-90s. But we're going to take it back a little further into history for a bit of context up until that point on morphine and heroin. Mm -hmm. So morphine can be traced back as one of the earliest habit-forming drugs in American history. Fun. For example, it was often prescribed to Civil War soldiers in the mid-1800s. Oh, wow, that's vintage. And they would come back and be like, can I have more of that? (laughs) So doctors saw addictions grow out of those prescriptions. And because of this, there was a demand for a less habit-forming but still potent pain reliever for everyone who, like, got their legs sawed off and everything like that. This is when the Bayer Company, which is still around and produces aspirin, yes. <laughs> released heroin. <laughs> huh? Yep, they made it. I thought you it were was about medicine. To, I thought you were about to say like laudanum. I was expecting some other like old timey. No, they called it heroin. 
Oh. It's on the bottle. There's, like, pictures of it on the old-timey bottle. Oh. It was released in 1898. Um, it was marketed as being significantly less habit-forming than morphine, which was debatable, if not completely untrue. Yikes. Um, it ended up exacerbating addiction in its users due to its accessibility. Um, this is a common theme that we will find again in the 90s. In 1924, doctors and government officials finally get wise, and heroin is banned in the United States. Later in the 1970s, when the Controlled Substances Act is written, heroin is classified as a Schedule One drug, meaning it is highly addictive with no medical properties. Up there also is, like, LSD, marijuana's up there, mm-hmm. even though it really shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, uh, but basically, it means big no-nos, they're terribly addictive, and they don't have a purpose, yeah. basically. Morphine and other opioids such as Oxycontin and Codeine are classified Schedule II, which is still highly addictive but with some medical uses. Mm -hmm. And I just want to take a quick break to say that I took Codeine after a surgery that I had, and I I swear to God, it was the the greatest feeling I've ever had in my whole life. Really? I, like, emptied the bottle into the toilet after I was, like, done recovering Uh because I was just like, this is a dangerous thing to have in the house. It was... It was the greatest feeling I have wow. ever had. It was amazing. Um, and, like, my dad, he took Vicodin after a surgery, mm-hmm. and he was, like, vomiting, and he was, like, the pain from the medicine is worse than the pain from, like, this open wound. I'd rather just take Tylenol. Wow. So some people, it's, like, no-go. <laughs> For others, it feels awesome. It's, like, this is um, I'm in no way saying I was addicted to it, obviously, but I took I took one of the more serious drugs, and I was just, like, this is incredible. It was yeah. incredible. Thing. So I was terrified because of how fantastic it yeah. was. Yeah. Well, for real, if you had been at like a different place in your life, well, I just I got it. I was yeah. like, I totally understand why people would destroy their lives for this because it makes you feel amazing. And um, if you're in pain and it can just wipe it away, like you know, I can't and I can't understand what it's like to be in pain every single day and have something wipe it away. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just can't imagine that. But anyways, this Schedule II classification becomes very important later on because it writes into law that morphine, oxy, and other drugs with the same addictive qualities as heroin can have medical benefits. And I am not denying that they can have medical benefits. They absolutely can. However, later we see drug companies and doctors stretching what those medical benefits are and who is eligible to use them. Yeah. So we're going to fast forward to 1995. In previous years, a letter was written in a medical journal that certain narcotics and versions of narcotics were not as habit-forming as once believed in medical contexts. Now, this was not a study, but rather just an article, you know, stating an opinion about a correlation and a narrow observation of hospital patients. However, this article is what Big Pharma lent on to justify sales of opioids en masse in later years. So in 1995, Purdue Pharma makes a huge advertising push for OxyContin, a long-releasing form of oxycodone. This is something that John Oliver focuses about a lot in his opioids epidemic episode. Um, he he kind of mainly focuses on the big pharma push behind it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very interesting, so you should all go watch that. Um, but this advertising push can be directly linked to the spike in opioid addiction in America. There's a clear uptick in interest and requests for what is being called the safe pain pill and a massive wave of prescriptions to people suffering from chronic pain. And this was not unwarranted. Nearly 100 million people were suffering from chronic pain at this point and were demanding new options to manage that pain, rightfully so. And often they had been denied or ignored in the past by doctors and medical professionals. Yeah. So 
Now, this is the switch we see in American drug consumption. Before, things like morphine, and in smaller cases even fentanyl, which we'll talk about fentanyl later, would be used sparingly for people who were basically dying. Mm -hmm. They would be used during hospice, during end-of-life care, and for people who were terminally ill with illnesses such as cancer. This obviously isn't the whole picture of how these drugs were used. They, They were used for cases that were less dire as well, but overwhelmingly these were drugs that managed pain when someone had like, no significant life left to protect Mm -hmm. um, from a medical standpoint. Um, And that is heartbreaking, but it's also extremely telling that these drugs were having slight changes done to their release properties and potencies and then marketed to people with chronic pain who had hopefully decades of their lives before them. Yeah. And it should be said that chronic pain in any form is no small thing to consider. There were and are many people who would happily trade the possibility of addiction for relief from unmanageable pain that's ruining their lives. And the truth is, two people can take the exact same drug and one will form a habit and one won't. Yeah. So it's a really messy and upsetting thing to think about. It is complicated. And people with chronic pain end up with no good options at the end of this. Mm -hmm. Um, Except for one maybe good option, which I'll talk about. So in 2007, more than a decade later, with pill addiction skyrocketing in our country, the government files a suit against Purdue for marketing OxyContin as non-habit forming. They basically said, like, you lied to your consumers. It's obviously forming habits. Yeah. At this point, Vicodin and Percocet had also hit the market under different corporations. So Purdue pays out, like, a $600 million lawsuit. They're still in business. It really didn't do yeah, anything. because they have, I'm sure, billions. Yeah. I, I think the purpose of that kind of lawsuit should be to shutter a company. Yeah. But it didn't. A few years later, as there is still an immense demand for regular use of opioids, the FDA approves a new iteration of OxyContin that brags its extra-special non-habit-forming qualities. Addiction levels do not slow down or even level. They increase. Oh, God. So in the next five to ten years, a few important things happen. The obvious one is that addiction levels keep rising, and the government is becoming increasingly concerned over this. In 2015, the DEA busts a whole ring of doctors and hospitals prescribing mass amounts of opioids likely for resale on the black market for inflated prices. And most importantly, in 2016, the CDC cracks down on guidelines for prescribing opioids to patients with pain that can be backed up with legal repercussions. This is the nail in the coffin for legislation and hospital policies that had already been pushing up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um But now you have thousands upon thousands of patients who have reached a manageable place with their pain, you know, whether they're abusing it or not, (laughs) who are being cut off from prescriptions their bodies have adjusted to. To give you a sense of how many prescriptions had been handed out, according to Vox, by 2009, physicians wrote 259 million opioid prescriptions, enough to give a bottle of pills to every adult in the country. Jesus. So now two things happen. The first is that prescribed opioid overdose death levels out between 2013 and 2016. The second is that heroin overdose deaths begin to skyrocket. Oh, gosh. And I don't want to make it seem like Americans immediately, like, swapped pills for heroin all at once. That's not really what happened. You know, it's a combination of the two. Those who have the means to continue abusing prescription drugs will do so, and those who can't will often turn to heroin as a substitute. Even the people who can keep getting prescription drugs will turn to heroin as a more potent option. Yeah. Many will use both or whatever is readily available. In 2017, 1.7 million Americans suffered from an opioid-related substance abuse problem. 
So that includes pills, heroin, etc. Of that 1.7 million, more than half of them abused heroin. So in that same year, more than 47,000 people died of an overdose linked to opioids. That's so sad. Yeah, the the largest amount um, in recorded history in America. So the problem with no solution in sight here is that addiction does not yield to use at any point. And what I mean by that is what you take is almost never going to be enough for your body. Mm. Most of us know this at this point, but when you take heroin the first time, your body reacts intensely, but the potency of the drug does not remain at the same level because your body adjusts to it and needs either more of the drug or a higher potency to reach the same level of intoxication or pain relief. So pills work the exact same way. Yeah. So what this means is that someone taking pills might not have enough pills to reach the high that they need, and they'll switch to heroin. And it also means that someone who ends up taking heroin will need something stronger than that. So now we're going to do like a little mini case study oh, fun. <laughs> of fentanyl. Um, I considered actually just doing an episode on fentanyl. <laughs> and it was so it was so linked to the opioid crisis that I just decided to broaden it. Let's just wrap them all together. Yeah, let's just do it if we're going to do it. So fentanyl was created in the 1960s as an anesthetic during surgery and went on to become a pain reliever mainly in cancer patients in the 90s, um, but not through consumption, usually through patches, lozenges, or, or um, uh, syringes. It has the same properties as heroin, but heroin requires sap from an opium poppy, um, so it requires a natural resource. Fentanyl is fully synthetic, and that means it can be created completely within the confines of a lab, which makes it much cheaper. It is also nearly a hundred times more potent than morphine. Oh, good. Yep. Um, for many years, dealers would cut cheap heroin with fentanyl to increase its potency, often killing people because taking it can kill you immediately with basically a thumbprint of powder. Wow. So while many people were taking it unknowingly, the spike in heroin use has actually increased the market for fentanyl itself. And like I said, you can die from breathing this stuff in or even brushing up against it. Um, and cops have often, you know, been severely injured or died because they try to save somebody who's overdosed. Oh, wow. And they have fentanyl on their bodies. Um, so a lot of police forces have had to institute new protocols for wearing protective gear, you know, when going to see somebody who has OD'd or there's like a drug scene in a home, like they can't know what's going to be in there and it could kill them very easily. That's crazy. And you would think that fentanyl must be the end of the line. Like it can kill you instantly with the smallest amount. Well, in recent years, uh, something called carfentanil has hit the market. Carfentanil was used chiefly as an elephant tranquilizer. Great. But is now available for consumption in the United States. Oh, I'm so glad. It seems like we really needed a harder drug. Yeah, exactly. So carfentanil's lethal dose is... So, like, <laughs> I saw a graphic that was, like, a lethal dose of heroin, and it was, like, a teaspoon. And then it, next to it was a lethal dose of fentanyl, and it was, you know... Even like, smaller. <laughs> like a dusting. Yeah. And the lethal dose of carfentanil was a grain. Jesus Like a Christ. grain of powder. Um, you can barely see it with the naked eye. So, uh, it's just, it's impossible to conceive, yeah. honestly. Why do we need that? So, that is sort of a pathway into danger that 
a lot of people in America right now are experiencing. You go in for a back injury, you're given pills, and, you know, within a matter of months or years or, or less, you're trying to find something that's going to match how you felt initially mm-hmm. because you can't help it. Um, and the most upsetting thing is that neither I nor seemingly anyone knows how to fix this. Um, it is a crisis that we're having. And, you know, like anything else, like environmental crises, like there's no simple solution. There just isn't. Um, and neither of us are really qualified to cast our aspersions. <laughs> but I will say this. We know how many people are suffering, and the absolute least thing we can do is keep the conversation at the forefront of our priorities. Um, And there's really a catch-22 that we need to acknowledge here because physicians have patients who are in severe pain, but they also have patients who are dropping dead within weeks or days due to abuse of prescription and illegal drugs. Yeah. So, you know, there's not going to be a quick fix for that, no matter how you slice it. I will say one option that has not been explored enough by science and medical research, mainly due to its restrictions, is marijuana. (laughs) I was just thinking, what if everyone Um, just had medical marijuana? Um, It's not right for all sufferers of chronic pain. For some people, it doesn't work. For some people, it has adverse effects. Um, Like, for example, like, I can't use marijuana because I have a panic disorder. So, Mm. like, I can't use it if I had chronic pain. (laughs) Um, Some people just can't use it. But it has incredible benefits for many, many patients who do use it. And while it's not entirely safe, you know, I'm not going to act like it's entirely safe. It's a drug. Like, yeah. you make choices when you <laughs> when you use it. Like, it has adverse effects on your body, just like, you know, fast food does. Yeah. Um, however, we do know it does not kill people by the thousands. Yeah. Um, we also know that states with more lenient laws regarding medical marijuana have 28% less opiate deaths. Really? That's nearly a third. That's amazing. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, so the last thing I want to say about this as a non-government and non-medically licensed citizen of this country, we have a responsibility and obligation to empathize with and care for those who have been affected by this. And moreover, we have always had that obligation to sufferers of addiction. And I think we really need to acknowledge what that means in the large scale. So in the 80s, when crack was being introduced to low-income, mostly Black communities, you know, addicts were suffering and they were being labeled as deviants and criminals and thrown in jail to rot for decades. And people are still in jail for crimes in the 80s um, during, like, the Reagan crackdown on drugs. And it was a real social attitude of, like, Mm -hmm. these people are bad and they're ruining our country. Yeah. And now we look at addiction differently because the kind of people who can visit their doctor and go to a pharmacy and pick up their prescription after some commonplace injury, they're being exposed to the world of illicit drugs. You know, your your family members, friends that you know, your friends' parents, like they're being exposed to illicit drugs like heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamines, etc., So now we begin to look at this crisis with more empathetic eyes, like they're our family. But all addicts are family to somebody. And I think that while we're having this discussion of what to do about this, we really need to examine the social attitudes we place on addiction, first and foremost. Like, you and I are not going to be the ones to fix this. Yeah. (laughs) But we can contribute to the social outlook on addiction, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important. So... 
you know, I guess the takeaway that I have from this is you can't villainize people of color for addiction while having compassion for your Aunt Susie who developed a pill habit. Yeah. You know, like, this comes for everyone. You know, it it really does, you know, it's like there's no rules now. <laughs> like, it's coming for everyone. Anyone is susceptible to, um, you know, developing substance abuse issues. And um, because of that, like, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Um, and we need to make sure that we keep our hearts open to everyone who is suffering, not just the people who look like us. And so my unscientific opinion is that the pathway out of this crisis will more than likely be led by the compassion of individual communities towards their own people. Yeah. I think that's probably going to be a big part of digging ourselves out of all this, um, like, in a spirit of togetherness and of helping each other. Um, but I don't know, and I hope that we make strides in this soon. Mm-hmm. And I would be very interested to hear everyone else's thoughts on, you know, the causation and possible solutions to the opioid crisis in America. Um, but, you know, until that point, that is all I have for you today on the American opioid crisis. Yeah. So that's that. It feels like, like, climate change to me sometimes, like... It's very true. When I think about it, I'm like, it's so overwhelming and imminently awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's kind of how the opioid crisis feels to me, too, that, like, there, it's so big, it's awful right this second and very soon in the future and like what and can forever I do? and yeah. forever and what can I do nothing yeah it feels very overwhelming yeah it really does um and I think yeah I I think that the most we can do is be sensitive to the people around us who are struggling and you know to the social attitudes that we are you know either compounding mm-hmm. or going against yeah so we have the power to do that at least yeah but yeah, I I was glad to learn more about the causation of mm-hmm. the of what's going on, but feel just as lost and yeah. just as scared. So I'm sure everyone else is feeling that way too. Yeah. Hey horror honeys, we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at I'm Horrified Pod. Your support means the world to us. And if you're not enjoying the show, why are you still listening? Maybe you do like the show. Well, thank you so much, Al. That was so, I didn't know like 99.9% of Me that. Me too. I didn't know that like basically one drug company was kind of in charge of the opioid crisis. <laughs> Fuck those guys. Jesus Fuck Christ. Fuck Purdue. Why are you still in business? Ugh. That doesn't make any sense to me. <sighs> All right. I wish I could say, like, and now you're going to talk about, like, gel pens and how they were recalled in 2001. Is that true? Um, I don't know. Oh my no, God. I don't think so. <laughs> Guys, if there's been some kind of gel pen crisis, please let us know. Please tell us. We're begging you. No, I mean, I'm going to talk about something that's sad but has kind of, I'm going to try to end on, like, a silver lining ending. I'm going to attempt. She's going to be um, a thoughtful episode. I think she's going to be, like, a very special episode. I'm excited. So. Um. It's just like that episode of Saved by the Bell where Jesse gets addicted to pills. Exactly. <laughs> Those are caffeine pills, but still. Right. Exactly. <laughs> one of my favorite episodes of Lizzie McGuire is when Miranda has bulimia for one day. Oh, yeah. Um, it's amazing. Same with DJ. She has, like, an, an eating disorder for one day There's an in Full House. There's an excellent... Um, Oh, God. Oh, it's okay. Funny or Die, yeah. So there's this amazing Funny or Die video called The Full House When DJ Almost Starved Herself to Death that is... <laughs> 
It's excellent. Yes. <laughs> it's excellent media commentary. They do that for a lot of, like, very special episodes of TV shows. I know. It's great. Uh, I love it. So good. Um, But that's not what we're talking about. But that's about. not what we're talking about today. Um, We're talking about uh, the life and times of Gloria Vanderbilt. So, you guys, something sad happened recently, and that is Gloria Vanderbilt, absolute icon and mother of Anderson Cooper, passed away in June. Um, I actually love Gloria Vanderbilt. I've watched her HBO documentary starring her and Anderson, Nothing Left Unsaid, at least three times. <laughs> and I am on the record as saying if I was a drag queen, I would want my name to be Gloria Vandercunt. And then I would have a <laughs> puppet that I would just refer to as Anderson Cooper. Um, <laughs> it's beautiful. You you told me that like three years ago. Yeah. And every time it just strikes me with its genius. Yeah, I think it would be really good, especially because I would not give the puppet a funny name. It, the, its name would just be Anderson. Anderson Cooper. <laughs> I love it. Anyways. Anywho. I feel like not enough people know about Gloria's life. And um, although it is ultimately a triumphant story, there is a lot of horrifyingness in there as well. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to talk about it, um, kind of focusing on her earlier life. And then if we have time, I'll, I'll pepper in some other garbage sh- stuff that happens to her. Thank God. Isn't that fun? <laughs> so Gloria Vanderbilt was born in February of 1924 in Manhattan the only child of railroad heir Reginald Claypool Vanderbilt and his second wife, Gloria Morgan. Now, the name Vanderbilt should absolutely be ringing a bell to you if you are American or if you've been to New York City or Newport or if you've watched Gossip Girl. (laughs) Um, Because there's a lot of important Vanderbilts in Gossip Girl, including Nate. Um, Oh, yeah, Nate. Yeah, he's technically a Vanderbilt. Forget that. Um, But the Vanderbilt family is like American royalty, They made a ton of money in the 1800s through the railroad industry, and then they just spent that money very lavishly for the next few generations. Gloria's father, who is the Vanderbilt in her family, he um, dies when she is one year old. So she's like not super connected to her Vanderbilt side at first, because she is left in the care of her mother, Gloria Morgan. So Gloria Sr. is a Swiss-born American socialite, known for her beauty, her love of partying, and her twin sister, Telma, Lady Furness. Wait, wait. Do you remember hearing about Lady Furness a few episodes ago? The same one! It's the same lady. The very same. So Gloria's twin is Prince Edward's mistress, Telma Lady Furness. Fuck yeah. Who is later usurped by Wallace Simpson. It is a small, fancy world. I... I get this, like, crazy <laughs> rush whenever that happens on this podcast. It's great. Um, yes. Yeah, so Gloria and Telma had been taking New York City by storm since they were 16 years old when they moved out of their parents' house and into a luxurious New York apartment. Of course. And then at 19, Gloria marries Reginald Vanderbilt, who is then 42. Uh, a year later, Gloria Jr. comes along, and a year after that, Reginald is dead. Right. Um, so here's Gloria Morgan Vanderbilt, now 21, with a baby, and what should be a massive fortune, and who never quite lost her love of being the belle of the ball. But the complicated thing is this. Mama Gloria actually does not have any money. Oh, no. Reginald had managed to spend his entire inheritance in his 42 years of life on just gambling and drinking and the like. No. So she gets nothing from this marriage. There's no no inheritance. The one who has money is baby Gloria. She is left a $2.5 million trust from the Vanderbilt family. So, like, her dad couldn't touch that to, like, fuck everything up. 
Um, and $2.5 million in that year's money would be valued today around $36 million. Wow. So it is just a crazy amount of money. Um, Gloria and Gloria have to live off the interest payments of this trust, but that is still plenty. <laughs> and it is enough that Gloria Sr. spends years going between Paris, the south of France, and London, accompanied by baby Gloria, her twin sister Telma when she's not fucking Prince Edward, and Gloria's beloved nanny, Emma Sullivan Keislick, who young Gloria has named Dodo. Oh. Dodo is literally Gloria's mother in those early years, while big Gloria and Telma are just living it up. Yeah, Natch. So, um, Big Gloria is briefly engaged to a German prince. She maybe has a couple lesbian affairs and is just kind of living the dream throughout Europe. This is not that great for baby Gloria. She is shy. She's kind of sickly. She's, like, not really flourishing jet-setting all over Europe with her mom. I mean, she's a baby. Yeah, she really just wants to hang out with Dodo. Um, at one point, Baby G gets tonsillitis, and so she and Mom go back to the United States so Glory can get her tonsils removed. And while there's, they're there, she sees her aunt, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. Um, this is her dad's sister, who is very cool and founded the Whitney Museum in New York City. <gasps> I love the Whitney. Yeah, so this was founded by Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. So Gertrude sees poor little Gloria and is basically like, hi, this is not a good situation. Um, why doesn't Gloria stay with me in New York while she recovers from getting her tonsils removed so she's not, like, flying around Europe with you? And Gloria Sr. is like, you'll watch my kid for me? Dope. Laters, baby. Oh, no. Um, and fucks off back to Europe. Gertrude is, like, kind of strict, but a way more stabilizing force for Gloria than her mother is. Like, Gloria now has a routine, and she finally is enrolled in a real school. And she's, like, maybe going to be a little less shy, because she'll actually, like, interact with kids and not just Dodo. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, she should. Yeah. And so everything, everything seems good. And then Gertrude one day is like, hey, we're still sending Mama Gloria all of the interest payments from Baby Gloria's trust, but she's not taking care of Baby Gloria anymore. So we should not be sending her the entire interest payment. Like, we should be using that. Like, Gertrude Whitney does not need money, but she's just like, we shouldn't be sending all of Gloria's money to her mom. Yeah, it's her money. If her mom's not taking care of her. And Mama Gloria is like, whoa, 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 you cannot cut my allowance. If I need the baby with me to get the full check, I'll just come and take her back. And then Aunt Gertrude is like, actually, Gloria is doing really well in New York, and I really want to keep her with me. And then Big G is like, well, actually, she's my daughter, so I can take her wherever I damn well please. And then Gertrude's like, actually, you can't if I sue you for custody, slut. <gasps> <laughs> good. I mean, good at this point, because Big Gloria's just, like, not doing what's best for her baby. Yeah, and, and so begins one of the biggest and most followed trials in all of American history. Um, later in life, the funnest thing about Gloria Vanderbilt is that she wrote, like, a fuck ton of memoirs, so we know a lot about, like, her thoughts and feelings. Excellent. Gloria um, compared this trial to the O.J. Simpson trial in terms of media frenzy. Wow. And back in the day, this was, like, before, like, TV was king, right? So it was just, like, newspapers. And this tri trial was on the cover of every newspaper for the years that it went on. Mm. It was, like, madness. Um, and so, like, literally, it's the shy 10-year-old Gloria on the front page of every newspaper with headlines like, Poor Little Rich Girl. And that's kind of, like, how the trial is remembered as poor little rich girl. 
Um, and when you hear that phrase, that's kind of the impetus of the phrase, is Gloria. Wow. So the stuff that they talk about in this trial is wild. <laughs> Town and Country wrote an article about some of it, um, and it was saying, quote, Julia McCarthy at the Daily News wrote, For five hours, Mrs. Gloria Morgan Vanderbilt listened to a tight-lipped nurse denounce her with virtual relish as a cocktail-crazed dancing mother, a devotee of sex erotica, and the mistress of a German prince. It was a blistering tale no skin lotion could soothe. (gasps) Oh! So that is Dodo, um, Gloria's beloved nurse, taking the stand to testify against Mama Gloria. Good. Well, because you know that Dodo has the best what's best for baby glow yeah at heart yeah tell me don't tell me that she gets taken away from baby glow we're gonna get there no 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 so the judge of this case uh judge carew um uh, at first allows reporters into the courtroom but that all changes the day that gloria morgan vanderbilt's french maid testifies to her employer's behavior when asked if she had ever seen anything improper The maid answered, yes, I remember one thing. It seems to me very funny. And then they're like, well, tell us. And the maid's like, I don't know. And they're like, no, you you have to. You're under oath. And the maid's like, (laughs) okay. And so the maid says she was bringing in some clothes to Mrs. Vanderbilt's room and saw Mrs. Vanderbilt was in bed reading a paper. And there was Lady Milford Haven. Now, Lady Milford Haven is like a British aristocrat. And she is like uh, Mama Gloria's best friend. And there was Lady Milford Haven beside the bed with her arm around Mrs. Vanderbilt's neck and kissing her just like a lover. <gasps> Lesbian <Gay> stuff. <laughs> um, so this was like a huge deal. There was a moment of complete silence in the courtroom. And then the room exploded in pandemonium. And from that day forward, the judge did not allow any press in the courtroom. Because it was, like, so scandalous. That's fucking wild. That maybe she made out with a friend. <laughs> um, oh, my God. So, in a ruling that would be very unlikely today, the court ultimately found in favor of Gloria's Aunt Gertrude as opposed to her mother. Um, and gave Gertrude full custody. Um, Gloria's mother was allowed, like, visit- visitation on weekends when she was in New York. Which is, like, pretty limited because... Her mom didn't really like to be in New York. Yeah, well, that's her choice, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know the whole thing, and, like, I don't like the idea of, like, separating a child from her mother, but it just doesn't seem like her mother's interested in investing time in her child. Yeah. It would be different if she was, like, I'm in New York all the time, Mm -hmm. and we're going to do what's best for her, or, like, making her a priority, but, like, it doesn't seem like that's the truth. Yeah. As much as I want to celebrate a historical gay. Yeah can't this time. No, it seems like this historical buy was a bad buy. Yeah, that's true. I guess I'm erasing her. Her uh, lover, the German prince? Yes, you are. Yes, I'm erasing <laughs> This him. is German prince erasure. Um, but so, um, Gloria, again, she's written a bunch of memoirs, so she later says that basically the judge had asked her, like, who would you rather be with? And Gloria's um, Aunt Gertrude, she was living with her Aunt Gertrude during the trial, and Aunt Gertrude's lawyers had, like, groomed Gloria and basically given her lines to say her mom was neglectful and that the German lover hurt her and all of this stuff. So Gloria, it was like, I was literally, like, practicing these lines, and then I went in to see the judge, and I just said what Gertrude's lawyers told me to say. And that's why they ultimately went with Gertrude. So, like, her feelings are, like 
kind of unclear about it. It like it seems like she feels like she was coerced, but she also like very much loved her mother, but referred to her as quote a beautiful stranger glimpsed only fleetingly. Oh my god, she's a poet. She really is. She's very talented, Gloria. Um, the saddest part. No, no, no. When she went to live with her Aunt Gertrude, no. Gloria lost the person she loved most. No, fuck off! Her beloved nanny Dodo was ordered by the judge to no longer care for little Gloria. And she didn't see her again until they were she was an adult. Oh. For years and years. But they saw each other again. I do think they saw each other again, like, towards the end of Dodo's life. Okay. okay. I think I remember that from the documentary. But it's so sad now. Very, very, very sad. So, um, let me just, uh, quickly talk about a few more of Gloria's troubles. Um, I wish I could say she lived happily ever after after that, but she doesn't quite. Yeah, it's only 40 minutes. We got time. We have some time. So she, at 17, she gets married to a man named Pat DeSico. He's an agent for actors in Hollywood and allegedly a mobster under Lucky Luciano. Obviously. Um, Pat allegedly killed the wife he had before um, Gloria, and he almost definitely killed comedian Ted Healy by beating him to death. Great. So it's no surprise that he was not good to Gloria. Um, He was both emotionally and physically abusive. Uh, She later said he called her Fatsy Roo. And he would beat her. She said, quote, he would take my head and bang it against the wall. Oh my god. And they stayed married for four years, but then she got out of that marriage. Good for her. Uh, then she, within weeks of uh, divorcing him, she marries conductor Leopold Stokowski. At the time of the marriage, Gloria is 20 and Leopold is 62, which is a big age difference. Okay. That's about 40 years of an age difference. But it actually seems like it was, like, kind of an okay marriage. Like, she, like, he, he just, like, didn't want to do anything, like, young or adventurous. So, like, they ultimately got divorced because she wanted to do things. And he was like, I'm very old. I'd rather just sit in my house. <laughs> But, like, they had two kids. He was encouraging of, like, her pursuing art. Um, Ultimately, she has an affair with Frank Sinatra and then divorces Leopold in 1955 after 10 years of marriage. But they had two kids together? But they had two kids together. Okay. Um, And one of them she was um, estranged for 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 40 years, which is very sad. Oh, God. But they they got back together, like, two years before her death. So they were back on speaking terms. Oh, good, good. Then she marries director Sidney Lumet. Um, It seems like that was fine, and then they got divorced. That's, like, not a very notable marriage. But then finally, husband number four is author Wyatt Cooper, who Gloria has referred to as her soulmate. Oh. So they were married for 15 years, and they have two sons, Carter and Anderson. And Anderson Cooper is a very famous news reporter Anderson Cooper. (laughs) Um, Gloria said that Wyatt was a wonderful man and father, gushing, quote, We had the family life that I'd always wanted. He made me understand what it would have been like to have had a father. He was the most amazing father. I've never experienced anything like it. I'd be married to him today if he had not died. But unfortunately, he did in 1978 at age 50. He died on the operating table during heart surgery. Oh, my God. Leaving Gloria, their son Carter, who was 13, and Anderson, who was then 11. Oh. And then here's the saddest, uh, what I think is the most tragic part of Gloria's life. Um, This next part comes with a trigger warning for a description of suicide. I know what it is. So her son, Carter Cooper, was by all accounts, like, a very kind, very popular boy. He had been dealing with some mental health issues, but he'd been going to therapy. But so he's 23. He just started some new asthma medication and he shows up at his mother's house saying that he and his girlfriend had just broken up and he's moving back in to her like 14th story, beautiful home. 
and he goes upstairs to take a nap. He's acting a little weird, but Gloria lets it go. Uh, Carter wakes up a few hours later confused and disoriented. He talks briefly with Gloria and then runs to his room. Gloria can tell something's up, so she follows him, and she sees him sitting on, like, the half wall on his balcony, half still on the balcony, but half hanging over the edge. So Gloria obviously freaks out and can't go closer to him in case he makes a sudden movement, but is saying to him, like, come back, like, come back over the wall. Carter moves, so now he's just hanging onto the wall with his hands. She said, like, a gymnast, like, he was just holding on. And she said to him, Carter, come back. And she thought he was going to, but he didn't. He let go. And he falls 14 stories to his death right in front of Gloria. Oh, my God. I didn't know all the details. Yeah, sorry for the details, you guys. But it's just, like, she's been candid now later in her life about, like, what happened. And she said, like, it's the most horrible thing you can imagine. She said she thought about going, following him. But then she remembered Anderson, her other son, who was 21. Right. And she didn't. But it's just, like, the worst, the worst thing imaginable is not only that, like, your child would predecease you, but, like, you were there. In that way. Physically yeah. in the room when that happened. Um, what she said about it was, quote, I have heard it said that the greatest loss that a human can experience is the loss of a child. This is true. It doesn't just change you. It demolishes you. Is the pain less? No, just different. It is there forever till the day you die. Oh, Gloria. It's f- a full nightmare scenario. So, like, this is a bad episode, Sam. Why did you talk about this? Well, I think we have to end on the silver lining that is this. Gloria died at 95. After Carter's death, she lives on, right? She has done incredible, amazing things. She is so beloved if you read the obituaries people have written about her. Like, the impact that she had on the world, the positive light that she shared. She was an artist. Like, and up until her death, she was still painting. She made designer jeans. She was a socialite. She was an actor. Like, she managed to continue living and being positive and, like, filling the world with as much goodness as she could. And that's all any of us can do. Like, maybe not to the degree that Gloria Vanderbilt had had to, but, like, all of us are going to have to deal with just garbage shit in our lives. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that you think to yourself, like, how can I go on after this day? Right. And, like, Gloria Vanderbilt is a case study in that you can. You're so right. You know what I mean? And she lived to 95 and had, I think, a really positive, good life, a good impact on the world. Yeah, she had 95 years of living that example of you know, putting into the world what you hope to see yeah. the next day. So it's it's a very sad story, but it's also, like, I could have done a whole episode on Gloria and only mentioned the wonderful, amazing things that happened, and it would have been just as long. Do you know what I mean? That's wonderful. And that's not our podcast. That's so. not for our <laughs> podcast, but for some other podcast, please do that episode. Um, but yeah, that's the life of Gloria Vanderbilt. I love that. And if, if you see Gloria Vandercunt at your local drag theater soon, just know it's me. <laughs> or an equally smart person. <laughs> or someone else. Who has outdone you and taken your copyright. And then you should storm the stage and tell them this IP belongs to... Take all their tips and Sam? send it to our Venmo. <laughs> um, no, don't do that. Um, that was excellent. Thank you for sharing her story. Um, I feel like... I don't know. I just feel like she's... The kind of bright, classy, you know, artistic light that we we hope we hope to make things in her image. Yeah, you know, 
Um, so fast. One of my favorite Glory Vanderbilt things is that one time she was sitting down with Anderson Cooper and they made um, a wonderful documentary called Nothing Left Unsaid. But they've done like a few interviews with each other. So I don't quite remember what this one was from. But they were talking about like her life and her young life. Um, and she, oh, and if you don't know this, Anderson Cooper is like one of the first out, um, reporters that like has a main show. He's, um, gay. And so Gloria was talking about her like life at like boarding school. And she was like, and you know, some of my girlfriends, we kissed. And Anderson's like, mom, what? (laughs) And she's like, yeah, it's not a big deal. And he's like, well, I, so you have had relationships with women? And she's like, yeah. Yeah, like she's just so, and you can just tell like Anderson Cooper is rocked by the fact that like his his like ninety something year old mother is so calmly just being like, yeah, I fucked women. Of course I have. <laughs> I love that. It's a it's a truly uh, great. I moment. fucking love that. <laughs> but like every other time that he's like interviewing her, he kind of has like his interviewer hat on of being like, oh really? And how did that happen? But like in that moment, he's like, mom. It's so sweet, their relationship. It really is. I find their relationship so, so darling. <laughs> um, uh, all right. That's what we got for you this week, That's you what guys. we got for you this week. I would encourage you to self-care after this episode by eating something tasty or doing something nice for your body, like a yoga pose or a bathtub. Yeah. Um, and uh, go listen to a funny podcast. <laughs> Yeah, listen, or one of our funnier listen to episodes. one of our other episodes. Listen to last week's episode again. Listen to last week's episode again. That one was that one was a wrong. That was much fun. <laughs> Nothing was serious then. <laughs> um, we plunged into the depths, but um, yeah, uh, I encourage everyone this week to be mindful, think deeply, uh, be good to yourselves, and until next week, stay horrified. Stay horrified. Thank you.